when I was a kid, I remember the fear that the deep end of the swimming pool brought to my heart. My grandparents had a swimming pool, and it was uh, drilled into me from very young. If I got into the deep end of the pool, I'd die. And if I could, unless I could swim. And I remember that the parents made sure to explain just how dangerous it was to be even near the deep end of the pool because you might slide down into the deep end and if you can't swim, you're going to die. It was a place to avoid at all costs. It was dangerous. It was the unknown part of the pool. I always wanted to know what was over there in the deep end, but I was terrified to go there until I learned how to swim. Then I found out the deep end was very much like the shallow end. I remember how awesome it was when I learned to, to swim because then I could dive off the, deep, uh, off the diving board and into the deep end and it made the pool even more enjoyable. Today, we're going to begin to look at the deep end of the swimming pool in the Bible. It's the part of the Bible... <clears throat> that is often ignored and described as unknowable. It's the part of the Bible that many of us are told to avoid because it can't be understood. But folks, this is not a part of the Bible to avoid. It is a part that we must courageously dive into and seek to understand it. We will find it very much like the rest of the Bible. The part of the Bible that I'm talking about is the study of the end times talking about prophecy. Now, it takes a little bit more work and discipline to know and study prophecy. And the message today is going to be, uh, for lack of a better term, very uh, theological. Uh, A better word would probably be uh, uh, very lecture-oriented. There's not going to be a lot of... uh, Jumping around. Pastor Mike's not going to be jumping around much. I'm going to be reading from my notes a little bit more today. Uh, And there's a reason behind that. You need some background. Folks, understanding the context and understanding the historical background of a passage is very, very important. You must understand what the author is trying to say, and you must understand what the people would have thought when they read it. You must understand what was going on in their minds. And if you're talking about prophecy, they have a whole different worldview than the way we would have thought, the way we think. We've all been bombarded with uh, various books like the Left Behind series and all these other uh, wild uh, stories of what the end times are going to be like. And so we have... uh, been bombarded with thoughts and so we have to kind of stop and drop down into the world of the people that are hearing this information and see what they're thinking because the whole goal is to find out what Jesus meant when he said it to them originally. So you need to understand some context. You need to understand how you should view eschatology, that is the study of end times. This is Jesus' explanation of the events to come from the moment that he said it. It is called the Olivet Discourse. Olivet Discourse. Jesus spoke these words to only four of his disciples in private. Now, when you read it in Luke, you might not think that, but uh, when you look at the other accounts, you see that he explains this to only Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Everybody else didn't get this information until later. These four disciples came to Jesus in private after Jesus had said the temple was going to be destroyed, and they asked him these questions that we see in Luke 21, 5, along with another question, as Matthew and Mark reveal. This is Jesus' longest answer to a question recorded in all of Scripture. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. If it's long, that implies that there's lots of details. (laughs) And that implies that you really got to think on this stuff. Usually, Jesus could answer a question and boom, straight to the point. You understood exactly what he was saying. But this time, he answers 
in a lot of information. A matter of fact, Matthew 24 and 25 is the full explanation of what Luke 21 is talking about. So there's two chapters in Matthew. So the reason I titled the message The Deep End of the Swimming Pool is because it deals with prophecy and eschatology. Now I know a lot of you are pan-millennialists. You believe that it all pan out in the end. But ladies and gentlemen, I think that's avoiding the deep end of the swimming pool. I think we are called to study these things. And I'm going to do my best, and I, I confess that this is a daunting task for me, I admit. This is not an easy one. I uh, was up till 3 o'clock again last night working on this. I considered numerous times this week punting for a month uh, and preaching other things so that I could get more time. And on top of that, Mr. Mark gave me an amazing book this week on Tuesday that helped me uh, in my studies. I, I posted it on Facebook. It's a Kaiser book. Everybody ought to read that book. It's called, uh, and I'm going to miss the title, but it's New Testament Use of the Old, basically. The New Testament's Use of the Old. It's by Walter Kaiser. I strongly ad advise you to get that. It will help you tremendously. So I've been reading that book all week at the same time trying to get ready for this. So there's going to be a lot of details and some of you that are visitors are you're going to be like wow is this what he does every week? Well there's times where we're going to slow down and we're going to think about things and we're going to deal and dig in and and this is one of them. Many commentators suggest that over one-third of the Bible is prophetic. Talks about uh, prophecies of things that haven't yet happened. And out of those third, um, only I would suggest a third, of the third, uh, a third of the prophecies have been fulfilled. There's still two-thirds that have not been fulfilled out of the prophecies of the, of the entire Bible. Do you understand what I mean by that? So there's a lot talking about the end, and only one-third of the talking about the prophecies to come have happened. That means out of your Bible, you have a lot more that's yet to happen. There's a lot more that's going to happen. And so it's very important that we get this and we understand this. And as you all all know, prophecy is probably one of the biggest things that cults use to lead people astray. People come and they say, the end is coming, the end is coming. You see an asteroid hit the earth or... A meteor hit the earth, boy, you're going to see everybody come out and say, Ah, oh, see, it's about to happen. And so you're going to have these kind of things more and more. And it's very interesting that Jesus mentions this in 21. So be careful. We need to study it, though, right? Cover to cover of the Bible. And I, I'll tell you that this is what expository preaching does. <laughs> it forces a pastor to do the hard subjects. I can't jump around it. Luke 21 was coming. I have to do it. And so we're going to do it. I will briefly describe some characteristics of prophecy to keep in mind so that we uh, brave the deep end of the pool wisely. <laughs> and so let's look at these. First, at the characteristics of the prophecy. You can follow along in your notes. You notice there's two sides to your notes today, so we'll see how far we get. Characteristics of prophecy in the Bible are these. Prophecy is difficult but not impossible to understand. Contrary to popular belief, you can understand the passages. It takes maybe a little bit more work, and it takes study. It takes maybe uh, getting out some commentaries, and it takes uh, making observations of a passage and spending more time. But it is not impossible to understand. It's difficult, but not impossible. Also, prophecy is difficult to understand, but worth the effort. Listen, why would God give us prophecy unless it was beneficial for us? And if you look at Revelation, turn over in your Bibles. I don't have it, I don't have it in my overhead, but I, I think it's important for you to see this. Revelation is obviously a book. It was written around 95 A.D., that is... 60 years after, after Christ had died, rose from dead, and ascended. 60 years after, okay? 
And it's, it's telling what's going to happen. The vast majority of this is telling about what's going to happen in the future. He says three things. He says that this is going to tell you what is and what will be, or the things that were, the things that are, and the things that will come. And most of Revelation is talking about will come at 95 A.D., which is, by the way, just so you, all of y'all know, after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Okay? Now, that's very important for you to understand. But notice what he says in verse 1, or in verse 3. John says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. What's blessed mean? Well, we all use it in the Beatitudes. Happy, joyful, favored by God is literally how you could translate that. Favored by God are those that, what, read and hear the words of prophecy. Talking about this book. This book is not a book to throw out. It's a hard book, I admit. But it's a book that we need to study. It's a great book. Prophecy is important. And it's well worth the effort to understand it. Third, prophecy will not save you, but it gives you hope and reason to persevere. This is very important. It gives you hope. That's the whole point. To think that God knows the end now and gives description of the end way before, 2,000 years more than it happened. Isn't that great news? God knows the end from the beginning. We'll talk about that. What does that imply about God? He's in control. means he knows everything, doesn't he? It means you can trust him. It means you can have hope, confident expectation in God. That the things that are happening around you as the world seems to be falling apart, it's not out of God's control. And that's very important. It's well worth it. Prophecy has some important interpretational principles to remember. As we study the passages that describe the end times, we have to keep these principles of interpretation in mind. So, that's the next section. Let's talk about these principles of interpretation that you have to keep in mind as you go through prophecy. Number one, you still use grammatical, historical interpretation is still the method of choice. Grammatical, historical. What is grammatical? You're going to look at the grammar of the passage so you know what it means, the grammar of the passage, to understand what he's saying by its grammar. You're also going to look at its history or its historical context to understand what the passage means in its original writers, to its original writers. It's so very important that we do not interpret the Bible based on what our presuppositions are. Now that's a, that's a wild thought. I want you to presuppositions, your pre-understandings. The tendency for us is to take the Bible, pick it up, and read it with our understandings. Do you understand? If they are not biblical understandings, then we're going to have some problems. Do you understand? What we have a tendency to do, all of us, is take our system of theology and then impose it on the passage to make it say what we want it to say. It's very important that we don't do that. Now, I know some of y'all are going to accuse me of doing this. And I will say you're probably doing the same thing. But I'm going to do my best. By God's grace, and I, I have to admit, out of all the t- last 40 sermons, this is one where I've been like, God, I need you, I need you, I need you. <laughs> Please help me. I want to make sure I get this right. We need to humbly seek the Lord and realize that our pre-understandings are not what matters. The grammatical, historical interpretation of a passage. Do you understand? Be careful of allowing your theology to give you the meaning of a passage because your theology might be wrong. It is not a grammatical, historical, theological interpretation of the Bible. 
That is a new method of interpretation out there. That is wrong. Systematic theology flows from a grammatical historical understanding of Scripture. In other words, your theology doesn't come down as equal to grammar and historical. Okay? Now, do you understand what I'm saying there? Do some of you get what I'm saying? You have pre-understandings of theology. Don't let those be the things that help you to understand the passage. Let the passage go to that. Try to put away your pre-understandings and understand it in its context. Okay, got it? Okay. Second, metaphors and figurative language still have knowable truth behind them. In other words, look, figurative language like in the book of Revelation. He doesn't use these things and just say... Oh, nobody can really understand what they mean. No, they, the, the original readers would understand to a degree what those things meant. Okay, would it take more study for some? Yes. We know Peter says that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, which implies that you have to study a little bit more. You might have to think on this a little bit more. Okay? But be careful, ladies and gentlemen, of just thinking, oh, that's figurative language. We can't understand what it means. Okay, because that's not true. Third, here we go. Here's a word for you. Prophetic foreshortening is a common attribute of prophecies. Oh, my. Prophetic foreshortening? What in the world are you talking about, Mike? A prophet, prophetic foreshortening is this. A prophet often includes... Two or more events in one predictive passage that were separated by time at, of their fulfillment. So in other words, what that means is, like in our passage in Isaiah 11, the Old Testament passage. Do you all remember going through that? And he was reading it, right? When Mike was reading it. You had that concept of a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Does anybody know who that is? That's Jesus, right? You got to shoot. That's Jesus. He will spring from the stem of Jesse. What does that imply? He'll come up, right? That would be looking at his what? Birth. When he first shows up, right? By the end of the passage, you had children playing by cobra holes. Ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you a question. Any of you... Parents out there, let your children play by cobra holes. No, we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Because they will bite them and kill them. The lion does not lay down with the lamb. That's what that passage was saying. So what you have is a prophecy that's given that spans thousands of years. Some of the prophecies in 11 have not happened yet. Some of the prophets in the beginning of 11 have happened. You have his first and second coming right there in one passage. Do you understand? So that's called prophetic foreshortening. We'll see another example in a second. Then there's often prophecies can have a near and far fulfillment. Now, this one is a tough one. And we'll talk about it in a second. One prophecy can have two fulfillments. Now, I know you're saying, what? I thought there was only one meaning. Yes, there is. It's just like a generic meaning that applies to other people. And I'll explain as we go along, and some of you might disagree, but I'll show you and you tell me whether you see it in these passages, okay? And I think Luke's passage in 21 has both C and D in it, okay? Both in there. And we'll see examples of it, and you'll, I think you'll see what I'm talking about. All right, first, uh, the near and far fulfillment. This is like the gift that keeps on giving. Okay? You get a prophecy, it reveals somebody, and then it's revealed again in another person. Okay? And we'll see that in this passage. Talk about it. Here we go. Let's look at another example of prophetic foreshortening first. We'll start with Isaiah 61. Look at it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins, they will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Now when you look at this passage, who can tell me, without looking in your Bible, if you know this, this would be really good. Where is Isaiah 61 quoted? Luke 4. Yeah, good. Our visitor knows his Bible a little bit. Good. Praise the Lord. Luke 4. That's exactly right. Luke 4, 18. Jesus actually quotes from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Look over at Luke 4. Jesus is talking to his hometown, and he says, And the book of the prophet of Isaiah was handed to him. Jesus picks up the book, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, where is he quoting from? Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, correct? Okay. Notice where... Jesus closes the book. If you look at Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, he closes it in the middle of verse 2. Boom! He closes it. Stops reading. Right in the middle of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, closes the book. What is that? Verse 61, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Stop. No more. Close the book. Now, think about our scripture reading. If we were reading the scripture, Old Testament passage, and we stopped in the middle of the verse, wouldn't y'all be going, wait a second, at least finish the verse. I mean, it's got an and. It's got an and. And the day of vengeance of our God. Why does he stop in the middle? Because the second part has not happened yet. But the first part has. You've got scripture, prophecy, that shows Jesus is coming and vengeance is coming. And they are, boop, right next to each other. And Jesus says, this has been fulfilled, that part. But the the book was closed before he got the second half. Doesn't this point to this idea of Foreshortening prophecy, seeing these things and not talking about the pit, the gap. There's a gap there. You see it kind of in this picture. The prophet looks out and he sees the peak, sees the first coming, and then he sees the second coming. Okay? And this is basically what it's like. You can't get around it, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, just to remember, for you to remember... This is why the disciples were so confused. They were clueless. Jesus says, in effect, I'm the Messiah. They get that. So what are they looking for? The day of vengeance. They're looking for this to start. He's going to set up his kingdom now. It's going to be here. He's going to clean house. Rome's gone. They're expecting it. But his second coming hasn't come. He came once. He came first to suffer and die. Then he will return. 
So we have this in this passage of Isaiah 61. Notice next. The near and far fulfillment. The gift that keeps on giving. Daniel 9. Turn your Bible. I'm going to show you the gift that keeps on giving. It's interesting. <coughs> Daniel 9.27 And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And he, that is the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That is a seven year period. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifices and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Keywords. Desolate. Keyword. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. What is this? Daniel 9, there's a reference to the abomination of desolation that makes desolate. This one is probably referring to the end when Antichrist desecrates the temple. This is talking about an event at the end before Christ returns. During the tribulation period, where Antichrist commits the evil act in the temple and it's built before the second coming, there's another temple built, and he desecrates it. Now, you say, no, this is talking about something else. Maybe you think it's Daniel 11. So we turn over to Daniel 11 and we see another prophecy. And it says, at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged of the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Now when you look at this passage, if you take that he's talking about Antichrist in 9, you might think, well, this is talking about Antichrist too, right? Wrong. This is talking about this man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Like, what? Yes. This prophecy is talking about what happened in December 15th, 167 B.C., before Christ. There was a man, ruthless man, that literally did a desecration of the temple. At that time, okay? Now you might say, well, why did God ha allow for this guy to desecrate the temple in 167 B.C.? Is he just the fulfillment of nine? And I would say no. And there's reason because Jesus brings it up again. And that's after 167 B.C. That it hasn't happened yet. Okay, so what does that mean? We have a promise of an antichrist, someone that's going to come and make a desolate on a temple. Okay? You got this promise. And then in 11, you have another promise that another one's coming and he's going to be like that one that's coming. Okay, so you have a near and a far of the same concept. Antiochus Epiphanes, in a sense, is like a type of the antichrist to come. Do you understand? It's very clear. If you go through this, you see that Daniel 11, you can ask Mark, he's a scholar on Daniel 11, because he went through it. And if you don't know it, you can go online and get all his messages on Daniel. He worked through it, and he doesn't feel like he's a scholar at any, but he studied. He did well. You can see and you can hear the sermons. He explains. So this is a, a near and far of one guy, Okay. Now you say, well, Mike, why in the world did you bring all this desolate up? Answer, Luke 21 says the same word and has the same concept. Look over at Luke 21. He says this. Jesus says to him, 
But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. You say, well, wow. Okay, so he tells the disciples, the four disciples, that a desolation is coming and it's near. Okay? When Jerusalem's surrounded, there's a desolation coming. Now, at this point, you're saying, wait a second. It's already happened, 167. No, 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 no. It's still near. Hadn't happened. Okay, and at this point you might say, okay, I get it. This must be 70 A.D. When Titus destroys the temple, because that's what Jesus was just talking about. And the temple is desecrated, correct? That's, the, that's called the preterist view. That's what he's talking about, right there. Okay, it's all happened. Luke 21's all happened. Matthew 24 has all happened. But ladies and gentlemen, no. There is again a near and a far. How do I know? Because you look at Matthew 24. And you compare and you see that what God did was he gave another preview of what was to come in the future. The desecration of the temple in 70 is pointing to a future when Antichrist will fulfill Daniel 9. Look at Matthew 24, 15 and 16. Jesus, in that same discourse, develops it a little better and says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Uh-oh. Couldn't have been... Antiochus Epiphanes, because that's already happened. It's got to be Daniel 9. Okay? So he's looking way forward. And yet at the same time, he's talking about a desolation that's near. Notice that little phrase, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand? Come on. Wasn't he talking to the four disciples? Why let the reader understand? Because the disciples aren't going to be there. Only the ones that are reading it are going to get it. This is future. This has not happened yet. But there's a near and a far. There's a Antichrist, a look-alike Antiochus Epiphanes, and then Titus will destroy a look-alike of an Antichrist to come. Of the abomination of desolation that's to come. Does everybody understand? Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So what happens in 70 is going to happen. That's a smaller scale of what's going to happen bigger in the future. Some of y'all are looking at me like, yeah, I don't know, Mike. Well, let's keep going. This is really important to understand, this prophecy. Prophecy is hard to understand, but with work we can understand it to a degree, right? There are events a prophet will foretell that will happen, and these events will have other similar events leading up to that final event that kind of points to it, the ultimate fulfillment. So if we're going to lay this out, this is how it works. Daniel made the prophecy in 550 B.C., Daniel 9 and 11. In 167, Antiochus Epiphanes does an abomination of desolation. 33 A.D. is when Jesus speaks again and makes a prophecy, a near and far, Luke 21 and Matthew 24. 70 A.D., the near one happens. 2013 plus, hadn't happened yet. An abomination of desolation will happen, a final one. That will be the fulfillment. Notice Daniel, Antiochus fulfills it, Jesus Temple is destroyed, Antichrist, abomination, desolation. This is how it, a near and a far. You see it? Daniel 9 and 11 were made in 550. Daniel 11 is fulfilled in 167. Luke 21 and 24 are made, or Matthew 24. Luke 21 is fulfilled. Matthew 24 and Daniel 11 are fulfilled. Y'all see this? Does this make sense? I like to see heads. Yes. Hey, you say, no, I'm totally clueless. I have no idea what you're talking about. 
talk to me after service. So again, what do we have here? Prophecies take some work to understand, but it is possible. It makes an application point for all of us here. If God can tell what's going to happen 200 years before it's going to happen, then that means God knows everything. That's very important for us to get. He knows everything. If God can tell through a prophet what will happen 2,500 years before it happens, then that means he's got all the details. If somebody tells you, be afraid, there's going to be an asteroid that's going to hit the world and it's going to destroy the world, shake your head and say, nope, I know how it ends and God's the one that destroys it. There's a big earthquake that happens. You go, oh no, there's earthquakes, there's lots of them. We're going to die. No. God tells how it's going to end. Trust him. That's the point. Now that was all prep for the next two weeks. Can we stop here? Nah, we got a little bit. It will take some work. But I believe you will be encouraged as we track our way down through this passage. He made this, Jesus made this passage in Luke 21, two nights before he was to die on the cross. We're going to see Jesus gives a glimpse into the future for his disciples. He uses these prophecies as a foundation for seven main commands for his disciples to obey. In our passage in Luke 21... He gives seven main commands. In light of knowing the future, he gives commands. And those commands, I think, and it's very interesting, are perfect for prophecy study. They're kind of the heart of why prophecy study is given. Why does God tell us what's going to happen in the future? And these commands are kind of linked to it. And these commands are things that we should hold to. We saw last time. That Jesus has revealed beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the best of the best that humankind has ever expo- revealed. He is the most glorious and holy one. He's the fulfillment of the poor widow giving it all. He's the fulfillment of the rich young ruler giving up everything for his people. Jesus is the best human to ever walk the planet. Praise God for him, right? He lived to glorify the Father every single second of every single day of his entire life. Perfect righteousness. And he was about to die. And yes, he's going to rise from the dead as we all know. But this was the last time he was going to walk around in the temple. And on Wednesday, his public ministry to the world was over. Do you realize... That the world had the light, but they rejected the light. After he rises from the dead, only around 500 or more people saw him rise, a resurrected Christ. From that point on, no more public ministry of Jesus. Only to his disciples. The world had the light, and they rejected the light. And Jesus, even his own were clueless about his departure. They couldn't get it. Even though he had told them repeatedly, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead. They're like, what? That doesn't make sense. No, you're going to set up your kingdom. They keep asking him that. In Acts 1, after he's resurrected, is this the time? He's like, no. No, no, you just go do your business. Make disciples. Tell them I'm coming. Do the Lord's Supper until I return. Keep making disciples. And so they've seen the God-man. The disciples have seen him, right? And the words of Luke 21.5 are shocking. They're shocking. If you see things through the eyes of what was really happening around them. Look at 21.5. What were the disciples looking at and marveling over? 
They were marveling over the temple. Look, it says, And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and bought of gifts. Why is that little verse shocking? Well, here's why it's shocking. The God-man was with them. Do you understand? The incarnate God was standing in their midst. Oh, folks. This is a case study in how the world often is distracted from seeing the true glories that are around them. The temple was a masterpiece in their minds. Artistry. Herod the Great had started a major renovation of the temple in 15 A.D., it was considered one of the great wonders of the Roman world. It had so much gold overlaying it that when it was burned to the ground in 70 A.D., the Romans literally dissembled every single stone and cracked it to pieces to dig out the gold that had melted into the rocks. And what were the disciples doing? They were sitting there looking at the temple going, Wow! This is amazing! This thing is truly staggering. But it paled in comparison to the man they were talking to. It reminds me so much of what we often do. We often miss the most glorious things because our attention is on human accomplishments. This is a perfect illustration of just how clueless we can be. Matthew, Matthew's account says the disciples came up to Jesus to point out the temple building to him. Mark says this to Jesus, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. <laughs> Do you understand who they're talking to? <laughs> it's crazy. This is a case of missing the forest for the trees for sure, huh? They were so focused on this man-made wonder, they failed to recognize the full glory of the one who they were speaking to. The temple was supposed to point to the true temple of God. The temple of... And all that was taking place on that temple, all those sacrifices... We're screaming, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is better. And they walk out of the temple and down the mountain and up the Mount of Olives and they look and they say, look at the temple. And they have the fulfillment of all that God promised right there with them. Oh, do you see the application for us today? Oh, is there not, fulfill is there not application for us? All of us are struggling with things like lust or... Oh, folks, do you realize what you're saying? Lust is better than Christ. He's not satisfying enough. I need this of the world. I want a house, car, good job. You're staring at the temple and missing the Messiah. He's better. Today, we're going to see what this Messiah says in effect. It's all about me. We're going to see that it's all about my return. Keep your focus on me. Because one day I'm coming back. Even though I'm not going to be here, your attention must be on me. And I'm going to tell you all the things that are going to happen before they happen so that you know that I'm the God-man. And it's not about a temple. And it's not about man-made accomplishments. It's about Christ. That's the point. So we're going to walk down through this passage. And we won't finish the entire discourse in the next five minutes so let's see how far we get before we need to stop look at this picture you get an idea here 
it's kind of a picture. That would be somewhat like a view from Mount of Olives looking over. This is where they're sitting. Because Matthew's account says that they were on the Mount of Olives. They sat down and the disciples came to him and asked him, the four. So he's looking out and they're looking and they're saying, look at that. You can just see that as they walk down, if, they, if you look, they, if they walk down here and made their way around up onto the mountain over there, they would have been staring up at it and seeing it as they went around. And as they went up the mountain, the Mount of Olives, they're looking over and they can see it. And it's there in all of its grandeur. And yet they were walking with the Messiah. <laughs> they were walking with the incarnate God-man who was just about to die for them in two days. That's the setting. Let's look. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be turned torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore... Will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Jesus is describing in verse 6 the destruction of the temple during the time of 70 A.D. This is 37 years after he is speaking. Okay? 37 years later. The disciples are provoked to ask Jesus questions because of his statement concerning the temple destruction. They're thinking, in effect, look, this is going to be torn down, so day of vengeance, right? It's got to be the day of vengeance. This is a time that's going to happen before Messiah sets up his kingdom. The disciples are provoked to ask these questions, and the questions are looking to that destruction of Jerusalem. The disciples would have associated the destruction of Jerusalem with the establishment of the kingdom, like I said. And they thought the Messiah would come and establish an army that would destroy Rome and establish his kingdom. And after all, he had just cleansed the temple just two days before, so obviously he doesn't like what's going on there. He's just going to wipe it out, and he's going to start a new one. They think all of these things are going to happen. Boom, 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 boom. Because they read passages like Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 11. And they're thinking, okay, for sure. It's coming. Boom, boom. Right? And so they ask questions that show how clueless they really are. They ask questions. They say, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, that's why I believe Luke's account is focused more on the destruction of Jerusalem. But Matthew's account reveals that they ask more questions. Look, Matthew 24 says... As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, that looks way out in the future. They thought it was all boom, 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 boom. But there's near and far to prophecy, and they couldn't get it. So they're clueless. They're totally clueless. They're asking him questions that for him to answer... Is virtually impossible. But he knows. He knows. Look, you guys just don't get it. He doesn't say that. He's very compassionate. He's very gracious. He's very kind. So what does he do? He answers all the questions in one big discourse. All of them. Boom. And they go. Uh, I guarantee you. They were like, what? But isn't that what Peter shows? In just a little bit, he's going to say, hey, if everybody abandons you, I'll die for you. He mentions two swords. Getting two swords. They get, okay, we got two swords. Let's go after them. You know what I mean? Let's fight. They're thinking totally wrong. They have no clue much less understanding the resurrection, even though he's told them and told them and told them. That's why you get to Luke 24 and the guys on the road to Emmaus, didn't you know he had to suffer? They can't look at the Old Testament. They couldn't see it all put together. 
So they're asking questions that show their cluelessness. So we can see from the disciples' third question, they associated the destruction of the temple with the end of the age. And this was wrong thinking on their part. By the way, none of the authors of the Gospels clarified this. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, none of them gave narrative to clarify it much. Why not? Except that little phrase, let the reader understand. Why didn't they clarify much? Because 70 A.D. hadn't happened either. They wrote those before 70 A.D. So they still don't understand time gaps. They're still thinking, ah, this is going to all happen at once. That's why when John writes his gospel, he doesn't write the Olivet Discourse. He doesn't include it. It's not there. Instead, he writes five years later the book of Revelation that points to something way off in the future. You know, there's some hope here for us. All of us that are struggling with eschatology right now, you're going, I have no clue what he's talking about. Neither did the disciples. (laughs) But I will tell you this. There's some good news. As we seek and serve our Messiah, and we are diligent and faithful to seek to know his word, more and more of these truths will unfold and we will understand it better and better. Aren't you thankful? I am so thankful. God does not want me to be on page 5,000 to call me his child. We are all on a journey to know our Messiah and it will take a long, long time. Thankfully, we have eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and kindness towards us. I feel like, Lord, we just only put our toe in the water today. But we see that you are the God who knows the end from the beginning. I am so so encouraged by that, God. I am also so encouraged that you don't expect us to know it all at the beginning, but that you save us by your Spirit as we understand the glorious gospel of your Son. May we, Lord, seek you with all of our hearts, disciplining our minds and our hearts and our bodies to study your word so that we will know you more, So that our hope and our confidence will not be in our own understanding, in our own theological framework, but in you. Glorious God, we come to you. We trust you. We know that you are God. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.